This is episode 48 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we are back with Pam Holland from Marshall University and the rest of her students. And I, again, I just want to say how blown away I am by these students and how much courage it took for them to come on here because I know that they were super nervous and I promised them they would do great. And um, I'm just, I'm so thankful that Pam came up with this idea and I think it was fantastic. So I want to encourage you guys to listen all the way to the end of this episode uh, because I think each student has something incredible to offer and to say and for advice to us on how to deal with other colleagues that we deal with on a day, on a daily basis. So I just think this episode's outstanding. Thank you again to Pam and her Marshall students. This was just wonderful. And just one quick announcement. I am going to be taking a two-week hiatus. I'm going to be taking a few weeks off. It's July. I hope everyone had a safe and happy 4th of July. But I'm going to take a few weeks off, spend some time with my family, get some sun. And we will be back at the end of July. We've got quite a few professors coming up, so I'm really excited to get into some more researchy things. That's so not a word, so don't scold me over that, but um, I'm, I'm really excited to dive into some more literature, and yeah, we'll be back with a few great episodes at the end of July, so thank you, everybody. I hope you have a safe and happy couple of weeks. Get some sun, spend some time with your family, and I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Okay, Teresa, our next expert is Megan Molnar, and she is a first-year graduate student. She's enrolled in my dysphagia course, and she was one of the first volunteers to participate in this advocacy project. She's going to be talking about the nursing perspective, that discipline that's with our patients, what they say 24-7, so we need to really listen to what they have to say because I think they tend to know the patient a little bit better than we do. So I'm going to let Megan take it from here. All right. Hey, Teresa. Hi, Megan. So I feel like I have a big heart to fill for this, but I think the nurse does a lot. So I guess where to start? So the role of the nurse in dysphagia care the main things that I kind of got from my research, decrease the patient's stay. You know, in any setting, we want the nurses or the nurses are going to want to work towards making sure that patient is healthy and getting them home into a comfortable setting as quickly as possible. They're going to reduce medical complications, again, improve overall health, make them healthy. That's our goal. And that's their goal. We're going to reduce staff turnover, minimize conflict and tension among caregivers, you know, you don't, the nurses are with, I think that's the main thing about this is nurses are with the patient 24 seven, whereas we're only with them when we're being summoned to go and, you know, evaluate them and, <laughs> um, and kind of, you know, do our role in that, but they're going to be the ones dealing with the caregivers, whether or not they're happy or unhappy. So they're going to, again, want to increase the quality of life for those with swallowing impairments, manage medication. One of the main articles that I read for this was that 
the different medications that patients are on. We as SLPs don't really know all of that. That's not in our in our training and our scope of practice to know all of those different medications. And I think that was one of the main things that I took away from our interprofessional education sessions is how much the nurse actually knows about all the different medications. You know, they just, they knew the side effects. They knew what they were. They knew all of that stuff. So when it comes to medication, if our patient can't swallow pills safely, then we may just resort to, okay, let's just crush them up and put them in a liquid form and have them take it that way. But in that article, it emphasizes that some medications are not meant to be crushed up and can actually do more harm than good. So knowing that and just consulting with a nurse about medications, I think is a huge deal. And then again, their role is just reduce mortality rates. If a nurse isn't aware of, or more importantly, communicating to us the signs of aspiration, like I said, they're with them 24-7. They're going to see that stuff more frequently than we are. So they need to be aware of what signs of aspiration may include. So wet vocal quality, complaint of uncomfortable swallowing, inability to eat at meals, and frequent throat clearing. So if we're not aware of that, and if the nurse doesn't relay that information to us, and we don't happen to see it in the time that we're actually with them, then that's going to be a big red flag. So that's why their knowledge about that and everything is crucial for the patient. So some special considerations for CNAs in long-term care and skilled nursing facilities. CNA knowledge of dysphagia is limited in terms of technical skill, safety, and communication you know, one of the main things I took from that as well is that they found that a lot of the nurses didn't know how to communicate with the patients while they were eating. You know, a lot of the times nurses may just be trained to just come in, make sure the patient eats so they can get their nutrition and that's it. And this study found that they kind of talked to the patients that were more cognitive aware and had the ability to talk. And so training nurses on how to talk while they're feeding to make feeding more enjoyable for the patients that may struggle, that's a huge thing that that was found in that and that they need to be more educated on. Another one is CNAs demonstrated strong skills relating to tray position, routine feeding, and preparation, but lacked in more skilled areas, such as feeding for those who present with dysphagia and how to accommodate for this strategy. So a lot of the times what it said was that they are more aware of the textbook things, you know, where to put the tray, what to do for this, and, and that kind of thing, but they weren't very skilled on how to deal with those with dysphagia and that kind of thing. So those are just some eye-opening things that I found in that. And so where we can step in with that is to broad a little bit of in-service training maybe and kind of discuss with them how they should be dealing with patients who do have dysphagia during feeding time and how to get them to eat safely and effectively. So that was another article that I read that they talked about how beneficial in-services would be for nurses in all different settings. So acute care, skilled nursing, and long-term care, all of those different ones. Which resources that, or which references that, Megan? Um, let me see here. Yeah, they should all be on the on the reference list. So what do the nurses want SLPs to consider? When asked about education, they did say that they aren't as, I guess, familiar. They know anatomy, obviously, but we're kind of experts on the from the waist up when it comes to swallowing and that kind of thing. So we know the anatomy a lot more than they do. So kind of relaying that information and that kind of thing would be very beneficial to them, they said. And as we were talking, Ms. Holland, she said if they said, and one of the nurses that I talked to said that they may not know how to properly, you know, effectively do the swallow, but they know what to do when something goes wrong. So that's what we were kind of saying. Like something goes wrong, you want the nurse there by your side to kind of help you through that. <laughs> Again, nurses are with the patient 24-7. Nurses would love it if SLPs could provide education, knowledge about dysphagia in, in general, in an effort to increase confidence in nurses. 
So again, that relates back to the weekly in-services or monthly training sessions provided to SLPs to nurses on staff, etc. So SLPs, they also said that they would love it if SLPs could evaluate every patient that has been intubated. So then surprisingly, nurses were interested in what SLPs do in the hospital setting when we're not working with patients with dysphagia. So we thought that'd be a good thing to advocate for when you know, maybe performing those in-services with nurses and kind of telling what else we do in our scope of practice when we're in the hospital setting. So in regards to the main takeaway points from nursing, again, be open to learning. Don't assume that one patient is the same as the other, regardless of diagnosis. Each patient's going to present differently. Be open to providing education to both nursing and nursing aides. If SLPs were to provide in-services to CNAs, information should include how to communicate, again, as I mentioned, and not just doing what needs to be done to get the food eaten, but to do it properly and effectively. Um, proper oral care after a meal is also important for nurses to understand and to take the nurse's information and provide solutions to problems they witness. So again, you know, hearing what they have to say, listening to all that's been going on with the patient. So potential benefits for that in-service training would include a decrease in the number of inappropriate referrals. Maybe if they were aware of what's going on, then they may know like what to do with it and not have to send out a referral, including, you know, if, if they're low and with alert levels, then they should know that, that we need to, the patient to be alert before we go and see how they're swallowing. Because if they're not alert, they're not going to be effective swallowers. And increasing confidence in nurses and interactions between SLPs and nurses. That's the article right there. The Magnus 2001. Okay. Perfect. Yep. So that's the one that's going to give you the benefits for that. I'm going to just bold that right back. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. And then take advantage of nurses' access to caregivers. You know, the family is going to play a crucial part in the patients with dysphagia. And just taking advantage of how well the nurses get to know the patient and get to know the caregivers. And nurses, again, are really many pharmacists. So don't forget their experience giving medications and really seek their expertise on that when dealing with patients with dysphagia. All right. So Megan, tell me, did you have to do an in-service for the nurses during your externship? Oh, no, I've not been out. I'm only first year, so I go Oh, you're first year. Yes. Okay. I know. No, I'm excited, but, you know, that's something I would definitely, definitely like to do. I have a friend. So you're going to get in there and you're not going to be scared to do it, right? No, not at all. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I, you know, it's like, I, I keep telling people, get out there, do an in-service, communicate. And I had a few people this week just email me and they're like, I don't even know where to start. And I'm like, oh, goodness gracious. So, yeah, yeah I'm so glad you're gung-ho about doing them. Yeah, I think that'd be definitely beneficial for both yes. SLP and the nurse because, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and who does it benefit most? Yep. Oh, the patients, yes, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Thanks so much, Megan. That was Thank great. You. And I just want to mention one thing in here. Um, I know... I've mentioned this a few episodes back with Vince Clark, but those of you that have access to fees, I think fees is an incredible tool to help to get nurses kind of on your team and to help educate them about what you do. So I love to use fees as a biofeedback tool with nurses too. So when you are planning to do an in-service with the nurses, bring them in while you're doing a fees, show them what you're looking at, show them the importance, show them aspiration. Um, I think all these things, we always say pictures are worth a thousand words, and I think fees can be such a valuable tool for that. And I want to thank our sponsors for this month, NDOHD. Go to www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. But they provide a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies. 
EndoHD can be a case-portable system as well as a carded system depending on your needs. And additionally, EndoHD reps can help clinicians set up their fees program. So contact them today at www.ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information. I think Emily was going to share with you, Teresa, something about the in-service because she has been off campus and she maybe want to share her experience with that. Cool. <laughs> you asked if she had participated in any in-services with nursing staff, and I actually did get the opportunity to do that with Lisa Job at Cavill. We initiated a new swallow screening protocol for the nurses to do, and so we actually had to go around and teach all of the nursing staff in the whole hospital between the SLPs that were in the office how to properly do that swallowing protocol. And so it really opened up a lot of opportunities for them to ask us questions about what we're looking for, because we also had problems every once in a while where we would be getting referrals that we shouldn't have been getting because they were fine. And so that really kind of gave us an additional opportunity to not only train them in the new protocol that they were going to be using, but also answer questions about when it would be appropriate to refer to us and when it's something that they can fix or when it's something that somebody else should be referred for. So it really gave a really awesome opportunity for us to talk to them, not just about the swallow screening protocol that they needed to learn, but also just about the swallowing in general. Awesome. I love it. Was it super scary? I was super intimidated. Say no, say no. But it was was really good. Like I think that the nursing staff was so helpful. We literally never saw a patient without asking the nurse if it was okay if we went in first. So I think just having that open dialogue is really important because we wouldn't want to go in and feed somebody who was going down for a test or who they had just tried to feed and who was not alert enough, you know, those kinds of things. And so I was really intimidated at first, but the longer I was there, I like really came to have a really strong respect for them and also loved that they felt comfortable with asking us questions and they weren't intimidated to ask. So it was really good. Yeah, that's so great to hear. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing, Emily. Sorry, I just hopped right back on there. No, please do. (laughs) Clearly, I'm not shy. So (laughs) I'm going to hop back on now, too, just because I wanted to highlight one of the things that Megan said that she came away from an interview. And I found it really interesting that one of the nurses said they want to know what we do in the hospital when we're not working with patients that swallow. And I thought that was so interesting to see how our profession has evolved because we've worked so hard as a profession to become the swallowing experts, to have a nurse not understand other roles was really an aha moment for me to remind all those practicing in acute care to, you know, let's not forget the other aspects that need to be provided education on and and with regard to cognition and, you know, just your typical dysphagia patient or someone with dysarthria and the fact that a nurse would say, what what else do you do besides swallowing? (laughs) Yay for us that we've come this far, but... (laughs) Right, right. But we're not swallowing pathologists yet. We're still speech language pathologists. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Our next student is Taylor Stamey, and she's also a first year, and she's bold enough, having not gone off, and her topic is going to be physicians and the role of the physician in dysphagia care. And so she's going to talk a little bit about that, primarily from a research perspective, because our first year students don't go off campus until their second year. And so here we go. Taylor Stamey, let's talk about the physician. Hi, Teresa. Hi, Taylor. Okay, so yeah, my task was to pull together some research for you about the physician's role in care of patients with dysphagia. And so 
their role is essential and we know that, but I think considering how many different physicians, the specializations that you can have when you talk about physicians in an umbrella term can kind of get away from us. So when I talk about physicians, I am talking about physicians that can be on the dysphagia care team. And according to ASHA, that can be the gastroenterologist, the neonatologist, the neurologist, dentist, pediatrician, psychiatrist, pulmonologist, radiation oncologist, radiologist, and otolaryngologist. Okay, so, so not psychiatrist, physiatrist. Psychiatrist. Well, the, well, physiatrist was on there too. Yeah, physiatrist. okay. Okay, <laughs> um, so when I started searching for information on all of these wonderful professionals, I worried that I had bit off a little more than I could do. <laughs> <laughs> so I started with what SLPs have in common with physicians. And so I considered physicians are looking at the whole person, you know, just like we are encouraged to look at the whole person and, you know, patient-centered care, that sort of thing, the patient's well-being and their entire mental health, a holistic approach to patient care. So physicians and SLPs are both doing that. Practitioners are also actively considering, you know, comorbidities, interactions of medication, and that we're always providing education in both of our fields. So one of the first articles, thankfully, that I came across was actually on PCPs, primary care physicians, and it was talking about data that they've collected through a national survey in 2014 that actually talked about how many patients were coming into the outpatient setting. So just going to see their regular doctor about dysphagia, swallowing complaints. And they're actually, physicians are not actually seeing as many patients with dysphagia as prevalence data that we know is out there suggests that they might. In this study, that actually not even 2% of people who go to see their doctor are coming for swallowing difficulties. And this included primary care physicians as well as like otolaryngologists and gastroenterologists and things like that. They grouped some of those. So physicians are seeing patients in outpatient settings for infectious and respiratory or digestive etiologies. And so these infectious etiologies can actually be treated by the PCP because the inflammation that they're experiencing will decrease after following the course of medication. So they're treating the etiology. And so they are not always having to refer them to an SLP. So the the big takeaway from that article was for me that physicians maybe aren't seeing people who they need to refer out. And so maybe we need to educate ourselves on what types of etologies, etiologies, we don't really need to have a hand in. Can you believe that an SLP just said that? (laughs) And then also maybe there's room for us to educate physicians on what types of etiologies they can refer to us. And then something else that I considered that the primary care physician has a specialty area in is the complex patient, which as we know is everyone. (laughs) So they're going to be treating with medications, recommendations, referrals for both pre-existing conditions, and they're going to be diagnosing new conditions as that patient lives their life. And so physicians prescribe and monitor a patient's medications for multiple diagnoses. We all know that. They're going to be looking at, you know, their heart rate, their blood pressure, diet, exercise, nutrition, allergies, and they're going to be monitoring mental and mood disorders and deciding whether or not they need to refer those things. So that is kind of the area that physicians fill when it comes to swallowing. It's making sure that everything in a person's care is working together in harmony. And then I found another article actually discussing how physicians, specifically um, neurologists in the hospital, can be helping to facilitate early identification of dysphagia. 
So patients that are coming in with, you know, acute stroke, usually the first person to see them is a neurologist, and especially depending on the time of day and who is on staff. So this article, it is analysis of a physician's tool for evaluating dysphagia on an inpatient stroke unit, and they use a modified man assessment of swallowing ability. Um, And so this was looking at physicians using a modified assessment to identify dysphagia early. And so based on the comprehensive clinical evaluation done by SLPs, 36.2% of patients in the study demonstrated dysphagia. I think there were 150 that they looked at. And then screening results from two neurologists using the modified assessment identified 38% and 36.7% prevalence of dysphagia between those two neurologists. So they actually did what I think is a pretty great job. Of, of identifying patients with dysphagia based on this modified assessment so that they can be identified early. And if anything, they overestimated, which I think is best that they're overestimating instead of underestimating <laughs> so that we can, we can be referred to. So they did, they did a modified MASA. Is mm-hmm. that, Pam, maybe you can help me out. Is there, a, is that like a formal name? Like, is there a modified MASA or did they just do their own version? My understanding was that they just did it their own version. Okay. <laughs> yeah. okay. I'm like, is there another version that I don't know no, about? No, okay. no, no, no. Okay. I, I think it's like when someone says, you know, we're going to use a modified PEX program. It's kind of like, yeah. what are you going to take from the PEX program to, to work? And so I think that was yep. my understanding. Okay. I just wanted to clarify that. Thank you. Um, I have highlighted the differences if you're interested. <laughs> They actually selected from the mass items related to alertness, cooperation, respiration, expressive dysphagia, auditory comprehension, dysarthria, saliva, tongue movement, tongue strength, gag, voluntary cough, and palatal movement. All right. And so they they, um, use the original scoring from the mass for those items that they pulled out. Okay. And then as I narrowed my research a little bit more to other things that physicians do because it is such a wide field, I looked at some of the research. So physicians are actually doing research that is really relevant to us as SLPs. And just one example that I found was on screening and evaluation tools of dysphagia in children with neuromuscular diseases. So this systematic review just kind of opened my eyes to how medical professionals are looking in to looking to try and fill the gaps in screening and evaluation tools for specific populations. So they're coming at it from a more etiology standpoint, but getting to the meat of things, they're sharpening the tools that we have for specific populations, which I think is really important. Depending on your population, you're going to act and choose your tools very differently. And then also, lastly, I have just, I pulled some guidelines that kind of help highlight the concept that physicians across all of these disciplines work with our relevant professionals to create what we know as national guidelines and best practices for patients from different populations. And these guidelines, they call for the PCP as well as the SLP's involvement and other disciplines to provide the best quality of care. So some examples that I pulled, the 2018 guidelines for the early management of patients with acute ischemic stroke. This guideline is 255 pages for, and it is about stroke patient intake and care, and it mandates dysphagia screenings. And it's from the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. So it is not from ASHA. It's from other professionals, but it includes us and mandates some of the things that we do, which is, I think, very important to consider. Another guideline is the American Cancer Society Head and Neck Cancer Survivorship Care Guideline. And so this used a multidisciplinary team, SLPs, MDs, and even cancer survivors to create a national guideline for survivorship. And then the last one that I have for you is Management of Mild to Moderate Alzheimer's Disease and and Dementia. 
28 recommendations. And they looked at everything from vitamins and supplements to driving recommendations for this population and therapies and recommendations and referrals. And as I was reading through that one, I didn't even, you know, think who decides when they're allowed to drive, who decides how they drive, who decides, you know, if they need somebody in the car with them, if they're fine to drive, that sort of thing. And they looked at that as well. And so it really opened my eyes to all the things that physicians do with our patients that not only includes dysphagia, but includes other things that are going on. And so my takeaways are that all swallowing disorders maybe don't need to be evaluated by an SLP because their etiology can be handled in the primary care setting. Another thing that I have for you is early identification. So maybe considering what the physician can do to help us identify patients early as they're coming into the hospital and just considering who is there to do an assessment, who is there to look at dysphagia. The other next one that I have for you is investigate current national guidelines. And so I think we as SLPs need to be aware of where the guidelines come from, what mandates our jobs, you know, basically. And also to share research, educate physicians on how dysphagia is going to impact all of those different things that physicians are looking at, the medical, mental, emotional, and social aspects. And then lastly, well, second to last, I have Etology leads to intervention. Etiology leads to intervention. So as a student, I'm always told that we need to understand the etiology to best treat the patient. And that's true, especially for dysphagia. Physicians can help us better understand the track of specific etiologies, which will further support evidence-based interventions. But we have to ask and seek that information from the physicians. And then lastly, refer when appropriate. The physician can provide education to us about what maybe we don't need to be evaluating. And then the SLP can provide education to the physicians about what is in our scope of practice and what they can refer for us. But we have to call, we have to talk, and we have to explain. It's so easy for us to task a physician in electronic medical records, but there is something special about calling and talking about a patient with their primary care physician. You are 100% correct, Taylor. Thank you. Did you happen to listen to episode 40 of my podcast with Dr. Madison Mocked? Did anybody hear that? He's a critical care physician in Colorado. And I think the title of the podcast was like, MDs and SLP should be like peanut butter and jelly. And so he painted a really good picture of interprofessional communication. So you might want to check that out, Taylor, because that seems to be right up right up your alley. So thank you for sharing all that. That was great. Let's see. Next up on our list of presenters is Allison Wilkinson. She's also a first-year graduate student, and she's going to be talking about the role of the physical therapist and the occupational therapist. And by no stretch of the imagination am I trying to put those two professions in the same category because they are absolutely not the same, (laughs) and they bring a lot of different things to the table. But in terms of time and, you know, presentation material, we felt that those to work nicely together. So Allison is going to share some insight on the physical therapist and the occupational therapist's role in the dysphagia care team. All right. Hi, Teresa. Hi. All right. But like she said, I am first going to start by describing both of their roles with dysphagia because they're not the same. They're both very important. So an occupational therapist, according to ASHA, evaluates and treats sensory and motor impairments and assesses prosthetic needs related to self-feeding and swallowing. So then a physical therapist evaluates and treats body positioning, sensory and motor movements necessary for safe and efficient swallowing, and they recommend appropriate seating equipment needed during feeding. So even though they're not the same, they're both very important to what we do. So before I entered our dysphagia course, I knew that we worked a lot with OTs and PTs, and I'm happy to have this opportunity to now look, or I got to look up how 
they work together. So our roles overlap because we work with a lot of populations that are the same. So we work with stroke patients and those with Parkinson's and cerebral palsy, or at least in close proximity for evaluations and therapy sessions. We're always treating with them and working with them in different ways. We work together because we understand the importance of positioning for eating and swallowing. Physical therapists and OTs, occupational therapists, all understand how important positioning is for daily living or functions, whatever they're trying to help them in therapy with. And then we understand with swallowing a little more. So if we work together, we can reach good positions and just good positions. <laughs> I lost my words there for a yeah, second. Okay. Um, <laughs> And then the last one is we all have a solid background in anatomy and physiology. We understand the muscles and the anatomical structures of the throat and everything that goes with dysphagia. So like Lexi was talking about earlier, we talk about respiration. Uh, we know about respiration. Respiratory therapists also know about respiration. PTs and OTs also work with things that go with respirations and respiration goes with dysphagia. So it's all linked together. So we all have bits and pieces that we know that we put together and we can create great plans. So I did find some beneficial research, but what I found the most helpful in my looking for the information was I received a great survey back. I asked Dr. Ashley Mason, she's a pediatric physical therapist, questions for our survey. And I feel like I got the best information back from her. Not that the research wasn't helpful. It was because it actually highlighted things that she went into more detail about that she's experienced. So one of the first questions was, how can we help each other? So how can SLPs and OTs and PTs help each other? And she suggested that there is a barrier when it comes to completely understanding each other's roles in healthcare, which I agree, because it turns out that we think that we know everything about swallowing and they think that we know everything about swallowing or they know everything about the muscles, but not that we don't respect each other because we know that we all go through school and we all have this background behind us, but we don't completely understand what each other does in full. So she said it would be important for us to have shared leadership, like tasks or groups, dysphagia group or team, whatever they call it earlier. Um, it would be important for all of us to work together to bring in all the disciplines and create the treatment plans and to work together and have a collaborative approach with each patient. So then I found an article, I think it's one about, it's Winstein, and they talk about how it's important for each discipline to understand the frequency and the progression and the overall outcomes of the goals. So what the end goal is trying, or what the end goal is for each discipline and what the end goal is for the patient, it's important to bring all those in when we're creating the treatment plan. So then the last thing, well, it's related to the shared leadership and the growing of SOPs and dysphagia. So I found another article that said that in recent years, the SLPs have become more important in dysphagia therapy. But the article that I read said that PTs and OTs used to be the primary person that they would go to for the treatment. And that is just an example of how that's changed over the years. I talked to another physical therapist and she said that in her schooling, she thought that the SLP was the one that should be in charge of the dysphagia team. And then she knew that they were important. PTs and OTs were important when completing therapy, but they thought that the speech language pathologist was the one that was in charge. So that was just another thing that's changed over the years. And that goes back to maybe not completely understanding each other's roles in the healthcare. So Dr. Mason thought that was important for us to think about. 
So then I went on and asked her, I said, what does the PT and OT want to know when, or from the SLP when working with the patients? And she says, she had a couple questions for me. And one of them was how often and how long is a patient seen for their dysphagia? Because when they go in for their treatment, they're not necessarily just treating them for their dysphagia as we are. They're treating them for their positioning or they're trying to build their strength back up, their core for breathing and for other life functions. So it's not only dysphagia. She also asks, is there something that is usually treated in acute care and then followed up as an outpatient? We're only addressed in acute rehab settings. So she was unsure of the settings and how long we treat them, which goes back to the Winstein article that I found, that it's important for us to understand the frequency and the goals as a whole team so we can be efficient in our treatment. So then she said, are there any positions that patients with dysphagia can be placed in to assist in swallowing? And this she referred to later on in the in her she I asked her a question later on and she says that when they reposition the patients, they're not always repositioning for swallowing. They're repositioning, like I said, for their posture or to work on their core and to work on different things. So then when the SLP comes in and wonders why they're in a certain posture or position that they are, that's not great for swallowing, how they got there, or why the PT or OT put them there. So she was just wondering if there are specific positions that they can be placed in to assist in that process. So then she asked how... So the positions that they help their patients get into, they wanted to know how this information is communicated to other healthcare professionals on their team, which links back to the SLPs coming in and not understanding. So they wanted to be related to or related back to their families and to the SLPs and any other professional that's working on their team. She wanted to know how it can be communicated to everybody so everyone's on the same page and have an understanding of why they're in this position or when we move them or SLPs move them and position them, what's most efficient for swallowing and just to keep each other on the same page. She asked about that. So then I went on to what do PTs and OTs, what should SLPs know about their role? And like I said earlier, they don't move them. They're not trying to not work well with us. They just, when they adjust them in their chair or they move their heads or their arms, whatever they're working with that day, they have their own goals that are not related to the swallowing. So that's why she thought that a more collaborative approach would help with equipment adjustments, just an understanding for all the people, even the patient and all the people working with the patient. So she also said it's important for us to make sure that they have the strength and endurance to maintain an upright seating position when working with the equipment. So we want to get them back to swallowing and eating as they were before. And that's what our goal is. But sometimes they don't have the strength to do that. So it's important to collaborate to find out ways to build up their strength to get them back to their seating position. And she also suggested there's a wider array of like seating equipment that can be used. So it's important to find the best type of seating for their positioning or find the best position for them because it's going to change with each patient. So then she talked about commercial high chairs. So she, where she's a pediatric physical therapist, she talked about children a lot, but she also said the high chairs and the recliners or bar stools or dining table chairs, they don't always have the best, they don't provide adequate postural support for someone with dysphagia. So if these patients are going home, they may not be having the, or they may not have the best seating. So it's important for us to consider what in all environments, what they're going to be working with when dealing with positioning for swallowing. And then she talked about because of the bad 
the way that the chairs are set up, the bad posture support can lead to faster fatigue. They're going to be tired quicker. So they think that it's important to work on the muscles at the same time they're working on dysphagia and just so they're not as fatigued as quickly or when they can't keep their head up. It's not, it's just, it may be a long day because she mentioned later on, maybe when we have a collaborative team working together, just talking about like how many treatment sessions they have because they go through all these treatment types. So it's important to plot that out so they don't get too tired from one to another. And then her specialty was sensory integration. So that was also something it was important to consider for SLPs because some patients, especially with pediatric patients, they have personalized sensory integration programs. So, and this is that created by trial and error. They just go through and those sensations that they do like and don't like. So the PTs will focus on things that they do like to create optimal environments for them to do better in therapy. But the SLPs may come in because she uses an example later about a child allowed to drink from a, like a specific textured straw. But then when the SLP comes in, they have to use a special cup. And she said, we need to find ways to collaborate to find a balance between using the textured straw and the cup to find ways that the sensory information can go into their swallowing therapy. So my takeaway points for this, this one actually came from Dr. Mason and it was to be open-minded. It's a shadow and observe as many professionals to learn what they do. And that will help you be a more open-minded professional or SLP and working with different members on your team. Always consider how other professionals can help the team because they can always help no matter what their discipline is. They work with different types of the body. They work with medicine. They can work with or doctors, dietitians. They work with different things. And if we come together, they will give valuable information to a team. And then the last one was always utilize PTs and OTs knowledge of, I'm going to say this wrong, kinesiologic Kinesiology. So that would yes, be what? I Kinesiological. Know, I, I, yeah. So their kinesthetic knowledge, I can see that. There you go. Neurological knowledge and their musculoskeletal knowledge as it relates to the body and directly and indirectly to swallowing. So as it would relate to our job. Awesome. Thank you so much, Allison. I don't even have anything to say. You just said it all there. So cool. (laughs) Okay. Our last, but certainly not least discipline is for the teacher, the person that's working in the educational environment. And our last graduate student is Heidi Dennison. And when we were talking about the podcast and preparing, she was joking about how she thought that, you know, she's interested in working in the schools. And so she thought, well, I'll just go work in the schools and avoid dysphagia altogether. But I think her research has led her or made her realize that that's probably not the case. So she's going to be talking to us about the role of the educator, the school teacher, the preschool special needs teacher, the teacher's aide, and how they can benefit our patients or in that setting, our students from the dysphagia care team. So Heidi is also a first year student and she's going to end our podcast because I know that we're a little bit over time. So that's okay. No problem. Okay. Hi, Teresa. Hi, Heidi. So to start out, interestingly, ASHA doesn't include an educator on their dysphagia team on the practice portal. What? Practice portal. They do have a disclaimer, though, that their list is not all inclusive, so we can't give them too much of a hard time for trying to. I think we still should, Everyone, But um, (laughs) I believe that our educators are extremely valuable when Absolutely. it comes to this role. To give Asha a little credit, they do list the psychologist on that team and 
as we know, psychologists are in the educational setting, and their role is to evaluate and treat patients, students, and their families in adjusting to dysphagia, disability, and coping ramifications for swallowing disorders and managing associated stresses. They also participate in behavioral feeding disorders. And as we know, dysphagia can impact a student's performance and safety while at school, can affect their alertness, their energy level, their cognition. Therefore, these services should be covered by IDEA, and these goals are appropriate for inclusion on an IEP. So in my research, I did an interview and read some articles and found some really interesting information. One of that is that SLPs report three primary barriers to effective dysphagia management in the schools, and those include liability issues, expertise limitations and experience limitations, as well as school setting restrictions. And this research was completed by O'Donoghue and Dean Clater in 2008. In another research study completed by Angel Bailey and Stoner, they indicate, and I quote, parents feel that therapists working with their children were inexperienced and unprepared to provide effective dysphagia management services. And hopefully the new graduate students that we have coming into the job market will be able to change that notion a little bit. While experience and expertise are significant concerns in the same study, parents indicated overwhelmingly that the disposition and caring attitude of their therapist is essential in the treatment of this population. Um, That's to say that willingness to seek further education and resources is essential because we're talking about their education and their Mm -hmm. safety. Um, A supportive disposition also includes being sensitive to cultural and religious feeding practices of (laughs) and This is where the role of our educator comes in. Our educators are going to know our students best, especially if you have a large caseload and are bouncing from school to school. So you talk to the educator about the client's culture, about their religion, and collaborate on ways that you can modify your treatment plan for that student. In all research, as we found across the board of us students, um, dysphagia teams are the gold standard in the medical setting as well as in the educational setting. In the educational setting, this might include teachers, teachers' aides, OTs, PTs, educational psychologists, administration, the parents, and also the students' medical professionals that are clearly linked with the educational setting. I found an incredible article written by Homer in 2008. It's my go-to article, and it details the process of establishing a dysphagia team in the school system. It covers the legal issues, the IEP considerations, treatment, and evaluation. So if you're in the school system, it's included in the notes. Go check it out. That article is fantastic. In the article, Homer writes, and I quote, it being dysphagia care is no longer something extra, but part of what the SLPs bring to the school environment. And I think we're really missing a part of our role if we don't treat the dysphagia of our students. So let me stop you right there a second, Heidi. So you were working in the schools and you had no interest prior to this in dysphagia. Um, Am I right about that? Well, I haven't been in the school system yet. Um, I've shadowed and observed some there, but dysphagia has always kind of intimidated me, quite honestly, because it's someone's life, not someone's speech or language. But through this research and through talking with the educator, I've realized that it's extremely important. 
Yeah, um, I found that language is simply not the only thing that I can do in the school system for my clients. So to the other nervous professionals out there, we can be in this <laughs> together. Uh, yeah, yeah. You're so passionate about this. I, I hope you really keep continue to pursue this. Yeah. Well, thank you. The teacher that I interviewed, she's a special educator. She just wanted to tell speech pathologists to um, seek more information and be more confident and also share their knowledge with the teachers like the other students stated other professionals want to be educated and want to learn more just like we do. We can never undervalue the role of the educator in the dysphagia care team. Educators are with the students five days a week, almost all day for as long as they're in their care. So they can provide valuable information about the students' progress, their emotional state, the changes in the child's care for the day, maybe some extraneous factors that might make their care a little bit different from one day to the next. So their educators are really, really valuable. So if I can leave you with a couple points, it would be that swallowing and dysphagia can be on the IEP and collaboration with disciplines, as we discussed, will assist in implementing this service. Continue to educate yourself, expand your knowledge base and comfort in dysphagia. Look for opportunities to join or initiate interprofessional dysphagia teams in your school district. And above all, as everyone has said, echoing everything that all the students in Miss Holland has said is uh, communicate, communicate, communicate and seek further education. My personal rule of thumb in care of my clients is that I want to treat them just like I would my child or my grandchild. And so that's what we need to do for all of our students. Amen, sister. All right. You know, Heidi, I think what's so fascinating about what you said is and and this is my my own problem too is that we get so laser focused on one part of our field and you know I'm so far down like dysphagia lane with old people but then there's also people that work in the schools but what you presented is well what about if you're passionate about both what if you're passionate about swallowing and you're passionate about the schools so i think you presented a great point of how you can you can work in both in that setting and deal with both of those kind of conditions so Thank you for bringing that to light. Thank you. And I just thought of this, but it'd be dysphagia and communication can go hand in hand. So while you're helping a child with their dysphagia goals, work on their communication and their speech as well. Um, It's a really good immersive experience. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks, Heidi. Thank you. Uh, Teresa, I'd like to piggyback on Heidi's statement about dysphagia in the schools and as the topic in general. I'm currently working on an article for 16 in the schools, and and it's really titled Dysphagia in the Schools, Yes, No, Maybe, because in working with the Marshall Feeding and Swallowing Clinic, it's an interdisciplinary team, and we have myself as the speech therapist, we have a dietitian, we have a behavioral psychologist, and we have a physical therapist, and I would see all sorts of kiddos coming in who had some significant feeding problems and swallowing problems and they weren't being provided services in the school. And initially I became very angry. I'm like, why aren't these kids getting services? And so I started doing some research and reached out to our state department of education and really tried to work with them on establishing a system for identifying those children that could benefit from services in the school. And, you know, it goes along with the theme of your podcast is continue learning because at the beginning of that endeavor, I was really angry and wanted to be educating the SLPs in the school. And after 
talking to them and working collaboratively with them and meeting with them and learning from how they write IEPs, I've really kind of come full circle in saying that, well, yes, there are some of our kiddos that should absolutely be provided services in the school. And there are others that there is no justification that it's educationally relevant. And that's why some of those SLPs are referring them to feeding clinics. And so I think that sometimes we as speech pathologists are the first to and I hate to use the word judge, but judge other speech pathologists, like how dare you. Yeah, yeah. But the more that we learn and, and again, communicate with those in other settings, the more we can have a better perspective of the decisions that they're making. And so. Absolutely. Topic is about interprofessional education. And so hopefully your listeners have come away with not just some insight into each one of the disciplines, but to end some my my takeaways on interprofessional education is I would encourage everyone to get involved. If you live near a university, I'd contact your local university and see what kind of endeavors they have for interprofessional education and interprofessional practice and be a part of that. I would encourage your listeners to educate yourself. There are ASHA webinars. Everybody's looking for free CEUs. ASHA offers a two hours free CEU and it's all on interprofessional education and collaboration. I know a lot of the universities are familiar with the CAA and the CFCC and even CAPS and the Council of Academic Programs and Communication Sciences and Disorders. And that sounds very academic, but so much of the information that they put out are resources for the professional. And so I would encourage them, you know, anybody who, who thinks they know how to collaborate to maybe take a step back and read some of the resources that are available. And so you can also be an advocate for IPE in your facility. I like one of the things that Megan said was that nurses are often the ones who are conflict uh, resolutionists. And so we think that we're good communicators. We think we're good leaders. We think we're good team members, but we're not, we're terrible. We are, we are. (laughs) And you know, the, the framework for interprofessional education, that paper has a whole system and a whole protocol for initiating an interprofessional education program for your facility. And so I'd encourage everybody to take, uh, take a look at that. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much, Pam, for orchestrating this whole thing. Thank you for letting us be a part of your elite group. I'm not supposed to have favorites, but I think this is one of my favorites. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're one of our favorites. (laughs) Oh, good. Oh, well, thanks so much, you guys. That was so great for all of your contributions. You guys brought the research to the table and the clinical applications and the interprofessional collaboration. And that was just, I'm speechless. That was great. (laughs) Okay. Well, have a great day, Therese. All right. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.